fights over intellectual property tend to only hit the front page when the music industry or Hollywood are involved. Not long ago, illegally downloading a movie or a song could land you in court facing millions of dollars in fines. But these industries have begun to weather the storm by offering alternatives, same-day digital releases, better streaming, higher quality experiences, that help meet some of the consumer demand that piracy captured. But the porn industry is not the mainstream movie or music industry. The web has created incredible new economic opportunities for adult entertainment. Independent production has flourished, as well as new types of production, which we won't go into here simply to preserve our G rating. But there are very few other industries on the web that face the same glut of competition from services that offer similar content for free or in violation of copyright. It's hard to get accurate numbers on how much revenue is generated from online porn. It's believed to be in the billions, at least in the United States. But it's even more difficult to get a picture of how much revenue is lost in the adult entertainment industry due to copyright violation. And the industry doesn't seem to be that interested in pursuing copyright violators. Intellectual property scholar Kate Darling studied how the industry was responding to piracy, and it turned out that, by and large, adult entertainment creators ran the numbers and found that it simply cost more for them to fight copyright violators than it was worth. Berkman alumnus and journalist Leora Kornfeld sat down with Kate Darling to talk to her about her research. IP without IP. The first IP is internet pornography, and the second IP is intellectual property. I have to admit, I am more interested in the second IP than the first IP. <laughs> That's what uh, everyone says. Is that, is that what everyone says? <laughs> and of course, your interest would probably be in the intellectual property aspect of things too. But how did you yes. end up bringing that interest together with internet pornography? So it's actually a play on a description for a type of research that has become increasingly popular in legal scholarship. So it's actually, it's information production without intellectual properties. That's what it stands for. And there have been a number of studies looking at how industries deal with a lack of or a reduced set of intellectual property protections if they're creative industries and they're they're producing creative work. Because what's been happening is that We've seen a bunch of industries, so there's been studies on fashion and stand-up comedy and chef's recipes and all of these communities that work kind of outside of the boundaries of intellectual property. So people have been studying them, especially you know with regard to all of the debates recently about intellectual property reform and in the digital age and all of the piracy. So I've been really interested in that stream of literature for a while. And it occurred to me one day that, you know, these industries are really great to look at, but no one's really looked at any of the industries that are kind of at the heart of the copyright debate. So massive entertainment industries, uh, people have been looking at the music industry and the major motion picture industry, but it just kind of occurred to me that the, the adult entertainment industry has always kind of been on the forefront of innovation and driving technology adoption. And they are basically operating without intellectual property was, was my idea because there's so much piracy online and they don't have the same kind of lobbying forces that the other industries have. So it just occurred to me that that might be an interesting study for that space of IP without IP, but with more parallels to the industries that policymakers actually care about. And the IP part also worked out too, that you could sub in the internet pornography for the information product. Yeah. That's nice and easy. <laughs> So to give us a sense of scale, it's a billion-dollar-a-year market, is that right? 
so it's very, very hard to get accurate numbers on this industry. Most of the firms are privately held. And it, there's also a question of how do you define what pornography is? So there have been a bunch of estimates. Most numbers on the internet I've found to be inaccurate, but at a minimum, it's a couple billion dollars, the online adult entertainment industry, according to people in the industry and their estimates. You um, talk about the uh, about information products, and of course, the old way of thinking about information products was copyright and then selling rights or licenses or physical goods. And it's easy to forget with what we've seen in the last 10, 15 years that there was a point to copyright and the whole point of copyright was to incentivize economic actors to make products, right? And this is something you talk about a lot in the paper. Yeah, exactly. So the theory, at least in, in the United States, or one of the main reasons or justifications for copyright law is you need to give people a monetary incentive to create because otherwise people will just be able to, you know, copy or replicate what the information goods that they produce and they won't be able to recoup their investment costs. And it's a very useful theory in some cases, you know, it's proven true to some extent, but this stream of literature has been showing is something that is intuitive to a lot of people, except for economists, <laughs> which is that there are other ways to incentivize creation. And it's sometimes a little bit oversimplified to say that copyright needs to be the driver. And what we also often forget is that copyright comes with costs. So there's deadweight costs of creating these monopoly-like rights, and it reduces access to creative works. It raises prices to creative works. So it's it's a very difficult balance to strike because both sides of the equation are very hard to measure. I just think it's it's important to, to realize that it is a delicate balance and that we don't have the answers and that it's not as black and white as we often think. And that's what you know, these studies together are, are trying to show and trying to establish what other factors could play a role or could be incorporated into this very simplified theory that we've had so far. To bring this now into the context of the work that you did, as far back as I can remember, and I don't know exactly when it changed, you probably do, pornography was about the only thing that people would pay for online. That was the one thing that people would always pay for and anybody could set up a webcam and be in business. And then what happened? Well, what happened essentially was is what happened to other industries, but perhaps even more extreme. Piracy, unauthorized use of content started getting more organized. So I guess the big game changer for pornography was when the same platform that YouTube uses was adopted for so-called tube sites where any user could upload short video clips of adult content and the platforms themselves weren't held liable for copyright infringement because under the DMCA, just like YouTube, they're not responsible for what people upload. And that just created this wealth of unauthorized content being stolen, being put up there. Sometimes, you know, they insinuated it was even the tube site owners themselves doing it to create traffic because they could monetize it through advertisement. And what this did, and this is why this hit adult content maybe even more than the music industry, is because content is comparatively 
a commodity to a lot of consumers in this industry, meaning if they can't get a specific piece of content, they are okay watching a different piece yeah. of content. Next best. Yeah. Next best is good enough. It's not like a Radiohead album. It's like, okay, I'll <laughs> yeah. just watch this other girl on girl thing. So except for in the niche content market, I think that kind of really started straining the traditional model of creating and selling content to people. Now, what was the methodology that you used? You mentioned that this is an under-researched sector. I mean, I can't imagine that there are a lot of academic researchers with a legal background, you're a legal scholar as well, looking at this industry. Now, what was the methodology? How did you approach this? So I did a qualitative study, where an empirical study, where I actually wanted to go and talk to people in the industry and figure out what they were doing, how they were dealing with the situation, because I had been interested in it and I had looked it up and there was just no information. I could find nothing. No one had ever actually gone and talked to these people about how they were dealing with, with this, how they were still making money. And so I did a study where I went and had in-depth conversations with some of the major producers in the industry. And I think it was a good you know, start into figuring out what's going on there. And I wish that more people would would look into it because it, it really is a fascinating and very innovative industry. So how many interviews did you do? I think it was, oh, it was about between 20 and 30 interviews. And did you go to some of those conference trade show things <laughs> that we've seen? Yes. How were you received in that environment? Actually, so I was terrified when I started this project. I had no connections to this industry. I had no idea, but I had gotten a research grant. So i cut my courage together and flew out to LA and Vegas and went to these conferences. And it turned out to be a really, really great experience. When I explained to people what I was doing and that I wasn't interested in social issues, I wasn't interested in, you know, the content or whatever, interested in the economics of it. And they were so excited to have someone come in from a good university who, who wanted to talk to them. And they were so forthcoming with information. They offered to share data. So I found it to be a really good experience in general. And I was much better received than I had expected. And it sounds like from what I read in your paper that a lot of these producers, I mean, it really is, it's all business, much more so, I think, arguably than in something like, uh, you know, the music business or things like that, where people aren't necessarily as business minded. It sounds like these people are pretty oriented towards profit and loss and cost and distribution and all that stuff. Did you find that as well? I did. I'm not sure how the industry has changed over the past years. And especially with, you know, dealing with this piracy problem online, I'm going to guess that a lot of the weaker industry players or people who are fooling around a little bit kind of died out because you really need to be smart and professional to weather this type of technological disruption. But yes, the people that I was dealing with, they were all business. They were very smart. They were very, I don't know, it just, that that industry, it's, it's amazing also to hear how much red tape they need to deal with because of legal regulations, which, you know, makes sense to a certain extent, but just their attitude towards dealing with not having support from the government, not having support from anyone, taking red tape as a cost of business and moving on and pushing on and trying to think of new ways to monetize things was very impressive. So give me some examples of the new ways that uh, this industry is monetizing, because what used to be the DVD or even the photos, those things are now commodities. It's pretty much a dying market, it looks like to me. So from a bird's eye perspective, I would say that the main shift has been towards experience goods and convenience goods, so services. So trying to offer an interactive experience to people that's not based on 
content uh, and that can't be pirated. So one example for that is the live camera market. It's supposedly very lucrative right now to set up live camera sites where consumers can interact with performers directly. That's something that people are still willing to shell out for because they can't get that off of a tube site. It's an interactive experience. And then like there's the whole service aspect. If you're offering people mobile services or cloud storage services for their libraries or ways that make it easy to access content quickly because consumers tend to be impatient in this market and access it in high quality and just make sure they can stream to every device. Like that seems to be working out for people as well, because that's the extra luxury that people are still willing to pay for. And just generally I've seen producers are right now they're throwing things against the wall and, and seeing what sticks. So you see them playing around with Google glass. You see them looking at all types of new technologies that will create a new, more immersive or different experience for consumers to consume. And I mean, you see that over time too, like this adult entertainment has driven new media formats so strongly, probably also because consumers are very interested in finding new, more immersive ways to consume content. And if anybody hasn't yet seen the movie Boogie Nights, <laughs> we all love that movie, but I felt at the time, and I feel now, especially from this conversation with you, that really is the story of one technology replacing another, yeah. right? Going from 35 millimeter film to these things called video cassettes and private consumption and packages in the mail and all that kind of stuff. Now, when you talk about the, the webcam business, are the people who are doing that, are they generally independent contractors? Because I'm interested in how things have changed with the star system and the studio system, which is how the adult industry used to work. Does it still work that way or to what extent? The feeling that I've gotten over the past year is that the industry is really changing massively and power is changing hands and money making is changing hands. So some of the people who are able to monetize these new technologies have been in the business for a long time. They've remained flexible enough to take over completely new business models and reshape themselves. In other cases, it's new market entrants coming in and making use of an opportunity. So be it live camera or also there was a company that came in and quickly purchased the most popular tube sites and started monetizing that. And they've since began to buy up some of the production companies or partner with them. So it's really interesting how the industry is becoming more consolidated and the players are, are different. And, and I'm guessing that, you know, this has happened before, just like in Boogie Nights, like you see a turnover that happens, which interestingly is what you know a lot of the mainstream media has viewed as the death of of the industry and i think that this turnover and this changing of hands is more survival that could work in industries like the music industry and um joel waldfogel i'm thinking of his work in particular and he pointed oh, yeah. out that in the music industry it's the only industry where when demand has gone down and willingness of consumers to pay has gone down supply went up <laughs> right? There's more bands than ever and more people than ever making stuff. Some are choosing to give it away for free. Others know full well it's going to get pirated. How has that played out in the adult entertainment industry? Um, I'm going to guess that production of standard content has gone down with the problems that they've had as they've been shifting to other business models. But the interesting thing for me was to see that copyright theory 
suggests that if we remove copyright protection, no one will produce any content. And yet content is still being produced despite all of these other business models. And it turns out that it can function as a loss leader. So people will give it away. Producers will put short clips up on the tube sites and, you know, use it to strengthen their brand. In terms of demand, um, I think producers have also moved away from, you know, the long form movie format because realistically, and I think studies have shown that people do not watch one and a half hours of content. What they, is it, eight minutes? Or I think I, remember, I read an article once where it was the average that people watched in hotel rooms was around 12 minutes, which even seems right. long to me. The, the other, uh, whatever it is, 68 minutes were just a complete waste of production funding. Yeah, but if you do a shooting session and then you cut that up into different short clips that you right. can then sell on their own, it becomes cheaper to produce and it's also become cheaper and easier to distribute. So... There's still some incentive there, but you asked about the demand side. And, you know, while I don't have any data or numbers to measure this exactly, this industry is notorious for for having very strong and also very stable demand in some ways. So people have argued that they're pretty much recession resistant because, or, or more so than other entertainment mm -hmm. goods, because people will cut out mainstream movies before they will cut out this type of consumption. I guess the challenge in in the current industry is how do you monetize that demand? But the demand doesn't seem to be as much of a problem as for other industries. An interesting analogy there to the music industry where the album has been unbundled to singles. So now you're suggesting that in the adult industry, it's the movie that's kind of been sliced and diced into what, like eight minute shorts? Yeah, or shorter. So the, the tube sites will partner with producers and the producers will put up maybe three or four minutes, but there's a length that's set by the tube sites that they partner with, for instance. Maybe people watch multiple clips or maybe people purchase eight-minute clips. I think one of the problems, though, that this industry is facing that the music industry doesn't face is the issue of micropayments. So in the United States, at least, it's kind of difficult to just sell individual clips for a couple dollars because these companies are usually rated by credit card companies. They're in a, a high-risk category. And so they have to have a minimum purchase amount that makes economic sense for them, which is not a couple dollars. And there are, you know, different models and ways to get around that. But the, like they face a lot more red tape than the other industries in this type of micropayment model. If you had to come up with a short list of bullet points of what you found in this particular industry that is helpful in thinking about other low IP intellectual property industries, what would those be? So I would say the the parallel thing that a lot of these studies have observed and that I also found in this industry was a shift towards selling experiences, selling services, and kind of secondary markets. I think that's something that's been largely neglected by traditional intellectual property theory and economics, and that we're seeing can be another model to finance production and finance these investments that might be socially desirable to make. I feel like we still need to be thinking a lot about the balance that our innovation policies strike and that copyright strikes. And 
it's hard to say that, you know, okay, well, people can just make money with services and experiences, then we can get rid of copyright altogether. I don't think that that works for every industry. I think that there's a lot of questions left unanswered about what happens to the quality of content when you do that, what happens to the amount. But I do feel like it does raise some questions or some possibilities that haven't really been explored in traditional theory. And if people want to read your paper in its entirety online, you can just Google what drives IP without IP. Please read it. Send me comments. Thank you. Thank you. Kate Darling is an intellectual property scholar, Berkman Fellow, and robot enthusiast. She was interviewed by Leora Kornfeld. You can find out more about Kate Darling's research, including a link to her study, IP Without IP, on our website, blogs.law.harvard.edu slash mediaberkman. We promise it's safe for work. This episode of Radio Berkman was produced by me, Daniel Dennis-Jones, with Leora Kornfeld and help from Gretchen Weber from the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. 